Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know that even your children can sometimes have a streak of Pharisee in us. And that, Lord, we can begin to think too much of ourselves and too little of you and certainly too little of other people. Lord, we can at times come before you and worship with elements of self-praise involved, intermingled with our words of gratitude towards you, Lord, we might at times be seeking some of our own acclaim. And yet, Father, your son Jesus is the only one who is worthy. You are the Father God who has loved us. Your son Jesus Christ is the one who is your display to us. And the Holy Spirit of God is the power who draws us, illuminates us, Lord, who makes us the people of God. All is owed to you, and we praise you. Lord, help us to see what a heart that is bent towards human praise can look like over the next couple of sermons in this book. And allow us, Father, to align our understanding of what true praise and worship looks like, Lord, according to this word. And Lord, through it all, help us to see the grace of your Son. For, Lord, all of us, even though we have a streak of Pharisaism, Lord, we depend upon your grace for forgiveness and strength to overcome. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. We know at Riverside that worship is not merely the musical portion of a worship service or even the worship service itself because worship ultimately includes a Christian's entire life before God. Whether at home with family or at work with others, Christians, even when we are gathered together here today, Christians are to worship God at all times with all their hearts, all their minds, all their words, all their actions, wherever they may be, a life of worship. There, there is a Latin phrase that encapsulates this good idea, quorum Deo. Literally translated, it means before the face of God or in the presence of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. It is to live with the knowledge that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are doing it before the gaze of God and ultimately for the praise of God. So quorum Deo is to live a life aware of God and in worship of God. Christians are to live lives of worship, but not phony lives of worship. Not with a worship that has been beguiled by selfish impulses, or with a worship that has been deceived by pride. My friends, it is possible to be genuine in your thoughts about worship and yet be utterly deceived, thinking you are honoring God when in reality you are not. This was the case with the scribes and the Pharisees of first century Israel. And in Matthew 23, Jesus, he takes the gloves off as he spares in this chapter no strong words in rebuking these men who claimed to worship God aright, but whose worship had gone wrong. 
These men believed they were the embodiment of true, living worship, when in reality they were, in Jesus' word, hypocrites. And so in this local church, our local body, we don't want to practice a worship that has gone wrong. Instead, we want to live quorum Deo, before the face of God to the glory of God. And therefore, we must carefully note the words of our Lord Christ here today. In our text this morning, we will first see a worship that has gone wrong, and then we will be urged by our Lord towards a worship that has done right. And this provides each of us an important opportunity for self-evaluation today, an important time for every Christian to stop and evaluate where they're at. And in your life before God, the question to ask this morning is, has your worship gone wrong? Is the streak of Pharisaism being found in your life and in your approach before God today? We're going to begin by talking about worship gone wrong and discuss three marks of worship gone wrong. Number one, much talk, no walk. Number two, hinder with no help. And then the third mark, all for show. Mark number one of worship gone wrong is much talk, no walk. Verse one, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Now let's remember a little bit about the context. If you recall from chapter 2, if you've been sitting with us over the last several weeks, there was a running back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel who brought him difficult question after difficult question, hoping to stump him, ridicule him or to put him somehow out of favor with the people but time and again if you recall jesus answered their questions with his matchless wisdom which actually put them on the defensive revealing their extremely poor understanding of the scriptures if you recall at the end of chapter 22 jesus exposed the pharisees misunderstanding of the most important issue of all the nature of the Messiah himself. It says in verse 44 of chapter 22 that Jesus speaking, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until they put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus asks the Pharisees, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? King David once spoke of the Messiah who would come, the one who would come as a man from his very loins. And he spoke of that individual as his own Lord. And Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, then what do you make sense of with that? Meaning, the son of David is indeed the Lord God himself, fully God, fully man, one inseparably for all of eternity now to come. And they don't get this. They miss the whole reality of who this Messiah would be. They miss the deliverer. What all of this revealed was that the scribes and the Pharisees were actually quite poor teachers of the people because they missed the entire message of the Bible because they missed Jesus. And so it is. You are a poor teacher if you miss Jesus, but if you get Jesus, you may be the most uneloquent individual in the world, but if you can accurately communicate who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you have far more teaching ability than these men. So Jesus... He now chose to go public with his rebuke of these teachers. 
It says in verse 1 that he spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. This is likely still in the temple. And it's in front of crowds of people, it very deliberately says. So Jesus is clearly wanting everyone there that day to hear what he was about to say about these scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to see a glimpse of this in the first 12 verses. But then when we get to the rest of it, we're going to see him just come at them strong with truth. And his words, they are sharp and they are convicting. Some of the most pointed words in all of Scripture are found in this chapter. Now the Lord, I think, was likely employing some irony here in referring to their authority in verse 2. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. When Jesus spoke of the seat of Moses, he was talking about the authoritative teaching role of Moses The man of God who centuries before, in the book of Exodus it's recorded, the man of God who centuries before led Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and right to the entrance of the promised land. Moses was the great lawgiver who was selected by God to not only teach his statutes to the people of Israel, but also to be their go-between. Their mediator between them and God, prefiguring the greater mediator who would come and stand between God and his people, the Son, Jesus Christ. Well, the scribes, these learned lawyers in the law of Israel, and the Pharisees, this party of religious leaders who were devoted to the law of Israel, they essentially saw themselves as continuing in the teaching role of Moses. They taught their understanding of the law, and they expected the people to obey their teachings. They saw themselves as sitting, so to speak, on the seat of Moses itself and with all the authority that came with it. And in a chapter that has so much biting irony, as we're going to see, I think Jesus is speaking here at least somewhat tongue-in-cheek. These men didn't even understand the most important part of the law of Moses, the nature of the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel whom Moses spoke about. And yet here they are, sitting on the seat of Moses. And the scribes and the Pharisees, their first problem was that they did not practice what they preached. Jesus said in verse 3 that that what they taught, it should be observed Meaning, I think, that when they teach the word of God rightly, it should be honored. But the people should avoid following their practice. Now, do you grasp just how strong of a rebuke that is? When they teach God's truth, do follow it, but stay clear of their lives. Don't be anything like them. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Yeah, they're going to talk. And they're going to hit some right notes, and when they hit those right notes, you listen to them, but do not mimic their ways. Why? Because they preached but did not practice what they preached. They were all talk but had no walk. They had much to say to the people and even more to demand of the people, but they themselves lived with unholy hearts and with unholy lives before their God. Now, we're going to see quite a bit more about the lives of these guys as we get further into this chapter, but to understand their practice of life before the Lord, their worship before God, think back to what Jesus had said in chapter 15. 
It said in chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus said to these individuals, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You've got traditions, and because you have traditions, you're using them to break the very command of God, Jesus says. He says a few verses later in chapter 15, verse 6, that for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You're so devoted to your tradition, it's exists, it's, it's, it is as if you have determined that the word of God doesn't even exist. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have value anymore. You've made it void, vacant. And then he says in verses 7 to 9, you, 7 through 9, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They had a lot of things to say, a lot of instruction to give, a lot of commands to offer. But at the end of the day, their own hearts were far from God. Their hearts were not full of faith and love towards God. Their hearts were full of a desire to bring praise and honor and glory to their own selves. So they might have hit the occasional right note, but at the end of the day, these guys are noisy gongs with very little help. They had much talk, but they had no walk. And this is the first mark of a worship that has gone wrong. My friend, is this you? Are you much talk, but missing the walk? Are you the kind of individual who has a lot of instruction to give, but you're the kind of individual who has very little willingness to actually obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Second mark of worship gone wrong is hinder with no help. Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. First of all, these scribes and Pharisees, they attempted to worship God by making the hearts of the people heavy with guilt and fear. They tied up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. You think of a person with much weight on their back being bowed over because of all of the weight they're carrying and they keep loading it on. These guys, they were really good at two things. Number one, making people aware of their failings, aware of their wrongs, aware of their guilt before God. And number two, making people afraid of who God is. They were really good at that. Helping you realize just how wrong you are and helping you see just how guilty you are before God and how much you should be afraid of God. They're really good at this. Now, don't misunderstand, my friends. There is an important place for preaching sin and judgment. And human beings must be convicted of sin, feeling the weight of their sin before our holy God and aware of God's righteous judgment if we can ever even be saved. You must recognize that you are lost before you can be found. But these guys, these fellas, they only ever increased the weight upon the people. The people... They were already troubled by their sins. They were already troubled. These, these scribes and these Pharisees, they just kept loading them down with more encumbrances, more burdens upon their shoulders. 
And the people of Israel were actually daily juggling their fears and their duties and their failings and their uncertainties and their guilt. And all that the Pharisees ever did was just toss them more balls to juggle. Not only did they load them down, but they did nothing to help the people know the mercies of God. They themselves were not willing to move their burdens with their fingers, meaning they wouldn't even take the slightest action, the flick of a finger, Jesus calls it, to help people know the kind character of God. They made life and religion hard, but they offered no help. They were all law and no gospel. There is a place for law. It shows us our deficiency before a holy God, but law by itself leaves people hopeless, burdened, encumbered. But law, law overcome by the gospel gives people joy and hope and rest, peace before God. And these guys gave them none of that. Where I went to school, there was a student union and out in front, there was a fountain, and about twice a year, there's a church in Kansas that would love to come up, the same group that would love to go to soldiers' funerals and protest and say rotten things. They would come, and they would stand on the fountain, and they would bark out at everyone who walked by, you young man, young girl holding hands, you're going to hell for your, for your fornication. And they would see individuals wasting their time or perhaps wearing clothes that didn't look a certain way. And they would bark out their judgments upon them. And as me and friends would sit and listen, we would never ever once, not one time ever hear them say, But, sinner, you can be redeemed. Sinner, you can be saved. Because God, the God of law, is also the God of grace. Never once did they hear it. Oh, the streak of Pharisaism is alive and well today. Now let's contrast this with the heart of Jesus, who said in chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of you who are encumbered by the weight of sin, all of you who are bogged down in guilt before the holy God, all of you come to me and what I will do is give you rest. That burden, I'm going to relieve you of it and you're going to follow me. And there's going to be trials as you go through this life. But as you go through this life, you're going to know the one who provides an ongoing measure of rest and joy. Because you know the God himself who made you, the God himself who redeems you. What a contrast. These men, they hindered, but they did not help. That's the second mark of worship gone wrong. Is that you? Are you all law and no gospel? Third mark. Third mark. All for show. All for show. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Consider the indictment here, my friends. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
the one who knows their hearts explains exactly the measure of their hearts. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. Their primary motivation was to put on a show, to present a public display in order to acquire the praise of other people. When they ultimately desired, what they really craved was to show themselves to be a better man than the next man. That's what they really wanted. Because the comparison game is at the very heart of pride. C.S. Lewis, in his, his book, Mere Christianity, he hits this, I think, in an excellent way. I'm going to read a little bit longer quote, but I think it's worth it. C.S. Lewis writes this. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. End quote. Pride is the pleasure of being above the rest. It's delighting and your concept of yourself, where you're able to view yourself and even get other people to view you this way, as if you were somehow, in some way, better than them. We don't like to talk that way, but if you search your heart, I bet you'll say, that's true. These scribes and these Pharisees, they had one primary motivator. To look good before the people of Israel, so as to have the praise and the respect they wanted from the people of Israel. Case in point, verse 5, they made their phylacteries broad. Not a temptation I have a whole lot of to make my phylacteries broad, but they did. Their phylacteries were small boxes inscribed with texts of Scripture, which were worn either around a Jewish man's arm or even fastened to their foreheads by leather bands. So you can imagine a box with inscriptions on it strapped to a man's head. And those who wore them took literally the command of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, regarding the words that God commands in the law, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So rather than seeing the, the, the analogy and the metaphor, they, they'd actually take it literally and say, okay, well, I'm going to take God's word and I'm going to actually plant it right here on my head. These men also had their fringes long, verse 5 says. Fringes were tassels, which Israelites wore on the four corners of their outer garments, in keeping with Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. The problem here with the scribes and the Pharisees was that they were getting pretty showy with their phylacteries and their fringes. They were getting pretty broad, and they were getting pretty long, they were ostentatiously displayed so that the people around them would take notice. Their goal was to get the people to think or even to say, well, he's, he's one of the Pharisees. Look at him. He must really love God's law. Look at the size of the box on his head. But Jesus, 
he goes even further in his rebuke of their pride. He says that whenever a feast was held, they wanted the seat of honor at the head of the table because, of course, the most important people should be at the most important place in the room, right? And whenever the synagogue was in session, they wanted the very best seats, which were generally considered to be those seats which were closest to the Old Testament scrolls, which were located in the synagogue. So once again, they wanted to be known for their perceived righteousness before the law of God. When you think Pharisees, you think of righteous men who obey the law of God. They wanted people to think that. They wanted others to regard them as holy men, to think of them not as sinners, but as morally superior. And whenever they entered the city markets, they loved to be called rabbi. There is something about titles that makes them dangerous to human pride. They can allow a man or they can allow a woman to be distinguished in such a way that they begin to actually think of themselves, usually imperceptibly, as if they are on a higher plane than other people. Never would we admit it. But oh, it's what drives us. Now, I'm not knocking titles altogether. I don't think Jesus is. After all, Jesus awarded titles, he even prescribed titles, but I am saying that they're dangerous. Money's dangerous too, so are titles. And for these men, they loved being greeted with the title rabbi. They loved being set apart by the people as important, as higher than the rest somehow. And Jesus knew this about these men, and he boldly called them on. Once again, this is all in stark contrast to how he himself urges his people to live before the face of God. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he said to his disciples, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your heavenly Father who is in heaven. Be really careful, Jesus says, about trying to do righteous things to get other people to see you do righteous things. He's talking about motivations. He says a few verses later in Matthew 6, verse 16, speaking of those men, the Pharisees and scribes, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Imagine grown men walking around as if everything is so awful because they're so holy, because they fast so much for God. This is what they did. And Jesus says, that's not to be you. So these men, they were all for show. And this is the third mark of a worship gone wrong. My dear friends, is this you? A little bit? Is your life marked by the comparison game known as pride? Do you look around and base your perception of yourself on what other people think and say about you? Well, that's worship gone wrong. Now let us consider worship done right. And there's two more marks. The first mark of worship done right is no self-exaltation. And the second goes with it, greatness through service. Mark number one, no self-exaltation. Look at verse eight. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. 
Now, Jesus is not actually saying that titles should never be used. I'm convinced of that. After all, the apostles were called in Scripture the apostles. Teachers in the New Testament are referred to as teachers. And the apostle Paul even referred to himself as a spiritual father to certain men that he discipled. Read early in the book of Philemon. What Jesus is getting at here is the danger of self-glory in titles, of treating them like the scribes and the Pharisees who sought self-honor, trying to get titles upon themselves so that when people thought of them, when people talked of them, they would consider them to be on a higher plane. And this is because all Christians, all Christians are on the same level plane before our holy God. We are all of us sinners saved by grace who have been redeemed by Christ and made part of God's spiritual family because he is simply good and not because we are in any way worthy. Notice verse 8. He says, for you have one teacher, referring to Jesus. Again, verse 8, for you are all brothers. Though undeserving, you are all adopted children into the family of God. Notice verse 9, for you have one Father who is in heaven. We have one good God over us who daily welcomes all his children to enjoy his love regardless of our positions. And again in verse 10, he says the same thing. You have one instructor, the Christ. When other people begin to elevate Christians to an unholy plane, Christians are to quickly resist because the place of honor is due only to the Lord. Listen to how the Apostle Peter responded when he was regarded as being higher than he was. In Acts chapter 10, he goes to a Gentile man's house to proclaim the gospel. And notice what happens upon his entrance. In Acts 10, verses 25 and 26, it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. My friends, if ever your britches get a little bit too high, a little bit too big, you get a little bit too sure of yourself, remember this. You are but a woman. You are but a man. You are someone who will one day breathe a last breath, and then you will spend an eternity with God or apart from God. And the only reason you could ever stand with God in eternity is not because you're anything special or deserving of worship, but because God has looked down on you, showered you with his grace, been good to you, and shown you the blessed work of his son, Jesus Christ. We are but men. How dare we take the praise and esteem of others. Now, I don't mean we should not be thankful for the appreciation of other people. But there are limits to how much we should take, and there are limits to what kind of praise we should ever welcome upon ourselves. Right Christian worship has no place for self-exaltation, only the exaltation of our triune God. That's Mark number one. Mark number two is tightly connected to it. Greatness through service. Verse 11 says, the greatest among you shall be your servant, your diakonos, where we get our word deacon. Verse 12, 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we've seen this before quite a bit, haven't we? In fact, isn't, isn't this becoming kind of a consistent theme with Jesus in Matthew's gospel? Back in chapter 18, he began a whole series of things like this when he said in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says a couple of chapters later in chapter 20 of Matthew, verses 26 through 28, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This particular Christian epic, it stands against the grain of our culture today, doesn't it? The idea that greatness is found not in titles, not in positions, not even in human achievements, but in humble service. Jesus says, the one who exalts himself before men will eventually be humbled, I think in judgment, before God. But one who humbles himself by serving others will actually, in the end, be exalted in the judgment of God. And this is because humble service is the same path marked by our Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross for sinners. God of glory, who never suffered, became a man and took on suffering, shedding his blood to pay for your sins and mine, serving us to be our only sufficient Savior so that if we look upon him in faith, we will be saved Praise God, Jesus came as a servant. And now, he asks his people to follow in his wake, taking up their cross, living lives of humble service. My friends, the path of humble service is the Christian's path before the face of their good God. James, the Lord's half-brother, he wrote in James 4, Therefore it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The path to and the enjoyment of God, the path to exaltation from God is not beating our chest and boasting before the world, but beating our chest in humility before God saying, I am a sinner. I have nothing to bring to the table, Lord. Fill me with your spirit and use me to help other people people. And when that happens, there's an exaltation and one that lasts for eternity and not these minuscule decades that we have here on this earth. But how? How am I to ever grow in humility? How will I ever stop being so prideful, so self-motivated, so devoted to my own selfish display how? Simple answer. Simple answer. By daily looking at Jesus. You don't believe me? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
Do you know what that means? The more you gaze upon the glory of Jesus, the more you understand about the marvelous nature of Jesus Christ, the more you comprehend about the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of our Lord Jesus, the more you behold him, you, like Moses, will have your face changed and made bright. Because with unveiled face, you behold the glory of the Lord, and not just your physical appearance is transformed, but your inner man, your inner woman, is transformed by the work of the Spirit from one degree of glory after another. You want to change? You want to cut out sin and begin to walk with God in ever-increasing measures of holiness? Number one priority Begin to constantly look to Jesus. His word, his prayer, his people. Seek him, reflect upon him, view him. And over the course of time, my friends, you will look different if you look upon him in faith. So God is not the God who merely gives us the command to follow and be like Jesus he is the God who gives us Jesus and says, look at my son, hold tight to my son, cling to my son, and when you do that, I'm going to begin to transform you just, you know, just like my son looks. You're going to begin to love people and serve people in a way you never thought imaginable. And if you think about it, these Pharisees, their pride ultimately stemmed from a failure to see Jesus. The reason they're rebuked so much in chapter 23 is because at the end of chapter 22, they did not understand that the Messiah who would come from David would be the Lord of David. They did not fathom who this Savior would be. Right Christian worship is marked by the pursuit of greatness through humble service. I urge you to be great by humbly serving God and his people. My friends, evaluate your life worship, your life before the face of God. Does your speech include a lot of forthright instructing, commanding people outspokenly, ordering others around and petty correcting of other people while at the same time failing to connect God's truths and God's commands to your own actions and to your own words? Are you a modern-day hypocrite? Are you a kindred to the Pharisees of Matthew 23? Does your life include telling others how they should act? placing terribly high expectations upon them while providing them with no patient provision of love to actually help them change and grow? Do you add to people's heavy hearts while doing nothing to relieve their staggering burdens? Have you made your life look really good on the outside so that people do recognize you and they elevate you and they even laud you. Are you letting your phylacteries get a bit broad? Are you allowing your fringes to get a bit long? And are people beginning to take notice? And is, is that what you're really after? When you enter a room, 
When you enter a room, do people make much of you or do they make much of God? If any of this is true, it is likely an indicator that at some level at least, your life before the face of God, your life in his presence has gone wrong. But in God's strength, this does not have to be your worship life. In God's strength, you can begin to see yourself transformed so that the pride can be slain. And you begin to walk in humility if you will recognize your need of Christ, not just once to be forgiven, but your need of Christ every single day so that you can be transformed. Instead, Will you refuse to take any honor upon yourself that belongs to Jesus alone? Will you see yourself as kindred to all of the other desperate sinners around you who have been redeemed by a kind God, recognizing that all that you have is simply by grace? And will you commit to a life of simple service where you humbly yet gladly bear your cross for the benefit of others? Will you be truly great by selflessly looking to Christ as the example of how to place others first? In your life, has worship gone wrong? And in God's grace, will you now do it right? Let's pray. Lord, who could ever stand at the weight of these things? The hypocrisy of this preacher is not lost on me. The Pharisaism that is streaking through my own heart and life is not forgotten. Lord, it is a battle that I will face throughout this even day and throughout tomorrow and every day I face, Lord, and yet I have Jesus. I pray, Lord, that all of us here who can be so tempted towards pride, every one of us here, Lord, that we would look upon the Son, Jesus Christ, and recognize that all of our sins, past, present, and future, can be forgiven by Christ through his shed blood on the cross. And I pray that in light of who Jesus is, Lord, we would look upon him and we would be transformed. That we would not be the Pharisees, but we would be those, Lord, who perform our righteous deeds before you because we love you and want to bring honor to your name. Help us, your people, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask.